0: Welcome to The Healthy Beast. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Rupi Audula. He's a medical doctor, a GP, and he's also the author of The Doctor's Kitchen. Loads of really nice, healthy ways to eat. Speaking to him has already inspired me to eat more healthily. I really enjoyed talking to him. I hope you enjoy it too. Okay, Dr. Rupi, doctor, author, and health food guru. <laughs> <laughs> health food guru?
1: <laughs> I was saying how you'd feel about that. Uh, I, I can rock it. <laughs> yeah. I think I,
0: maybe that's, that's a sign of how far in you've got, if, if you're comfortable with the word guru. <laughs> guru, yeah. <laughs> but you have, you have got this following now for it's the doctorskitchen.com, I should say. And what stood out to me was how joyous it all seems. Is yeah that the kind of was that you kind of aim when you set out to do that's it? the
1: feel I think because I think uh, a lot of doctors who go into the food area uh, give a, a rather sort of stoic clinical approach to food like and I think with the whole clean eating sort of uh, era that i I feel like we're moving away from you know it's very bland this is uh, green and red, and these are the exact proportions, and eating prescriptively, I'm not a fan of that. I'm much more a fan of appreciating, yes, the medicinal effects of eating well, all those wonderful plant chemicals, and all those wonderful attributes to food, as well as the beauty of eating, the aspects of community eating, the cultural values that are tied to food, and uh, the, the entire sort of ethos around food and how intertwined it is with our existence. You know, the, there is something much more health promoting than just the food itself. It's the whole act of eating and the purpose of eating as well, so.
0: Because I think the problem for me is I think we got into this, um, this situation where a lot of us think of either healthy food that is not very nice yeah. or nice food they want to have but shouldn't have for health reasons. Which seems to, seems to be all kind of the wrong way around to me because the idea that healthy is not very nice doesn't make any sense if you think about it, if you think yeah. about what foods are for.
1: Yeah, we, we like to think of things in very black and white terms, right? You know, this is healthy, this is not healthy. This is what you should be eating, this is what you should definitely not eat. And unfortunately, it's not like that. Healthy eating, in inverted commas, is a very grey area. Um, you know uh, the the process of eating the time in which your life what you 're eating um, you know these all have an effect of whether this is going to lead to a health promoting aspect to you or uh, this is going to be negative for you. I can eat you know tons of different legumes and chickpeas and uh, lots of different types of uh, carbohydrates, rice, white rice, brown rice, etc. but for some people, that might not be the best way of eating for them. So I think healthy eating or uh, eating to promote your, your well-being is very individual and I think people need to be a lot more intuitive about it. But we can have fun. And that's why I'm glad you picked up on the joyous sort of aspect of The Doctor's Kitchen because it should be enjoyable. It should be something that we welcome. It's not something that should be restrictive or bland.
0: Because you remember this awful phrase about being on a diet? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, as, as blokes particularly, Yeah. yeah. or oh, mate, you're on a diet. Yeah. Like, you couldn't admit it. It was, like you, you, you were, it was because you were too fat. That was the only reason and you you would go on a diet which would mean suffering and eating less and that was kind of that was kind of all we. That was the first window into healthy eating. Exactly. Rather than your diet being the thing, everyone has a diet. Exactly, and especially yeah. when it's a shitty one. Or yeah, a good yeah, one. yeah. No.
1: I try to stay away from the word diet because it it, it has those connotations. It's something you do uh, because you have to. It's something you do because you you've got some sort of outcome in mind, whether that be weight, whether that be you know your sugar levels, whether that be your cholesterol. and you know it's just it's just something that no one really wants to do whereas actually you know the whole process of eating we are so lucky to have incredible amounts of ingredients on our grocery shelves we have tons of spices we have tons of different variety from cuisines as well as all the different types of food and we should be enjoying that it's nothing that we should be shying away from it's everything that uh, that can be health promoting and that's why I try not to use the, the diet word
0: Yeah, because it's this, you don't want to be thought of as giving something up. It's more like you're opening a door to all this new stuff.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, look
0: at your recipes. I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not a great cook and I don't, I've never like cooked with a lot of the things on there because you use some quite stuff which i guess a lot of us would consider fairly exotic
1: yeah yeah i have had that comment actually i try to um reduce the number of unusual ingredients and the way i do that is i literally just go to the grocery store and i look at what what is on offer so you know there's cauliflower there's red peppers there's Uh, peas, there's uh, sugar snap peas, all the different sorts of ingredients. But some people might go to the grocery store and not even realise that they're, they're there. In fact, a lot of people that I've spoken to go to a supermarket and they get the same stuff every week because that's, that's where their comfort zone is. So my sort of idea was to push people out of their comfort zone. And then I go to the spice section and we're really lucky these days where we have huge aisles full of different spices and people might think, oh, I've never heard of sumac or I haven't used the coriander seeds or where do I get this particular sort of spice blend? Whereas the majority of supermarkets we have, particularly in this country, have all of these different ingredients and they're really not that hard to access, particularly with Amazon, particularly with all these different things. And that's why I think, you know, there are standard um, spices that everyone should have in their pantry. You know, they last weeks and weeks, they don't go off, there's so many different ways in which you can use them. And my recipes sort of encourage you to, to use them as much as possible because a that's how we inject flavor into our food and b that's actually how we inject, inject lots of new uh, lots more uh, micronutrition and nutrition into it
0: when did it all start for you when did you first get interested in food and this deep level
1: in food i think i've always been i've raised been raised in a household that has appreciated lots of different types of cuisine so my mum cooked tons of meals from scratch when I was growing up and she had like a sort of high-powered job and she was graphic designer, she did law, she did loads of other things but she always made time to cook um, different meals for us and that would be a collection of Middle Eastern food, American food, we'd have Italian, we'd have Indian obviously Um, and so I've always grown up with that sort of, that feeling that food should be enjoyable and we should try different things. And plus I was addicted to food programs as well when I was younger. Yeah, we always watch food programs as a family. And then when I went to medical school, my mum taught me, I didn't know how to cook at this point, so my mum taught me two or three recipes, one of which was uh, lemongrass Thai curry. It's actually a recipe that's in in the book. Um, And it's with galangal and Thai basil and coconut cream, all these delicious ingredients. So when I went to medical school, and I was making this meal, everyone thought I was like this amazing chef, whereas actually I only had a repertoire of maybe two or three recipes at the time. So to keep up the pretense, I, I you know, learned some more recipes and I really got into food, genuinely. Um, so you thought you were like working your way through your repertoire, you really were doing,
0: <laughs> doing like learning one, and then- I was learning. just keeping one step ahead of everyone,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I was lucky to live in a, a house share with a whole bunch of guys that were into their food and stuff, and, and that really like just, yeah, we just used to experiment, we used to do barbecues, we used to do roasts, we used to do uh, loads of different types of cuisines, Indian food, it was, yeah, it was really good. But the turning point for me, when I sort of wanted to apply that culinary experience, I suppose, to healthy eating was when I got ill myself um, so in 2009 when I qualified as a doctor I started working as a junior doctor in a really busy uh, district general Hospital loads of night shifts loads of like you know uh, stressors and I developed something called atrial fibrillation which is uh, a heart condition where your heart beats uh, irregularly and in my case very fast up to 200 beats per minute and um, I would go into these episodes, lasting anywhere between 12 and 24 hours, two to three times a week. Um, there were no clear triggers, it wasn't alcohol or caffeine. I was in fairly good shape. I wasn't like, you know, uh, overweight or anything. I saw a tonne of different cardiologists, and I was gonna have something called an ablation, which is where they, you put a guideline to the heart and you burn an area to stop these excitable cells from misfiring, essentially. Um, and I was gonna have that procedure, but it was, again, my mum uh, who actually convinced me to try some other things. So she asked me to analyze my diet, see what I was putting in there. And at the time I was you know living off canteen food, sandwiches, eating poorly when after shifts and working late and night shifts and all the rest of it Um, so i started applying my culinary experience to you know healthy eating getting a lot more greens in my uh, diet a lot more healthy fats less refined carbohydrates less uh, sugars less snacking Um, i wasn't drinking tea or coffee Um, you know i did a whole bunch of other things as well as uh, mindfulness, uh, sleep hygiene, concentrating all the, my whole lifestyle uh, as, a, as, a, as a whole and um, I managed to reverse my condition um, which is kind of unbelievable it certainly was for me at the time um, and since then I've tried to, I've tried to retrospectively figure out what's, what happened because um, to, to go from two to three times a week to zero over the last six years Um, It's kind of unheard of.
0: So So you kind of knew about food, and obviously you were trained as a doctor, but you weren't taking such good care of yourself, or would you say kind of average...
1: Yeah, I, I bit, would bit
0: prior to getting ill.
1: Yeah, you, you know, I would say most people would look at my diet and lifestyle and say, "Yeah, that's pretty average," um, particularly for a junior doctor. Mm. And you know, I spoke to my cardiologist about, and they were like, "Look, no, there's nothing really much you can do with your diet or your lifestyle. You, know, you, you you seem in good health. You know, your diet is average. You have cereal in the morning. You have sandwiches at lunch. You have like a pasta in the evening. You know, that's just a normal diet for a lot of people. When you break it down nutritionally." it's deficient in a lot of micronutrients, it's deficient in fiber, it's deficient in variety. You know, all these different things that now I've learned that are so important, um, but at the time I had no knowledge about. And, and that's partly because my medical training didn't have any nutrition uh, element to it.
0: Well, this is this was the next question really, because it always seems strange to me that you're there at the kind of this super high academic level doing the, the most important medical training, the actual focus on lifestyle and diet and so
1: forth, that doesn't seem to really factor in medical training as from, from what I hear. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, even to today uh, they get less than 10 hours nutrition training, sometimes none at all actually. I've seen a report uh, where the first paragraph is, nutrition training in medical school is uh, insufficient or non-existent. Mm. Um, And unfortunately that was the same experience that I had and I went to one of the best uh, universities in the country if not the world and We didn't have that nutrition training.
0: Yeah, I asked a few doctors and a couple of them kind of scratched their heads one said I think there was a course one morning, but I didn't didn't go. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Because it's not examined, that's the other thing. Like, you know, with that volume of information as medical students, you've got to be quite picky about what you apply your brain power to. This is just the fact of, you know, Mm. uh, of medical training. And if you know this is not going to come up in the exam, you're going to take a very lax approach to it, and you're probably not going to go to the lectures. And I remember going to those lectures, actually, because I had somewhat of an interest at the time. Um, but hardly anyone was there it's fascinating though isn't it
0: that that um the one thing that would really like if, if you're going to be a gp for example the one <laughs> thing that would really help i mean is is knowing a bit that, that everyone can do yeah absolutely
1: know? and i i would go so far as to say it's more than 50 60 of what i see as a general practitioner but also in a and e You know, I was working yesterday and I've had loads of diabetic complications come in, loads of migraines come in, lots of people with cardiovascular disease come in. You know, what are the causes? It's not deficiency of statins, it's not deficiency of blood pressure medications, it's their lifestyle that is fueling a lot of these conditions. Um, And the more real we get about this problem, the more we can actually look for solutions and we can direct our resources appropriately. And my conclusion is that we need to direct it toward lifestyle where nutrition is a critical, critical component.
0: So it's two different things, isn't it? If, you, if it's the doctor's kitchen, people are coming to you because they want to do something, they like your recipes, they want to be healthy. Yeah. If you're seeing someone in a clinical situation and you, they need to change their lifestyle, you, you're then faced with a difficulty of may, making them do something that they may well not want to do. Yeah, and totally. do you see people just, they dig their heels in... Or,
1: Sometimes I do, and I think you have to take it on a patient by patient basis. You know, I'm not gonna be having a conversation with someone about uh, oats and putting seeds on their porridge in the morning when they don't know where they're gonna be sleeping in the next two weeks time. For them, it might be a case of damage limitation uh, or finding out where they can get some some food uh, at all, you know, and and nutrition. Um, Other times, it's uh, taking a very clinical approach I always like to bring in the evidence base behind what I'm saying because it adds validity to what I'm saying, but it also convinces and it can motivate people as well. You know, when I pull up studies about how diabetes can be improved or managed better when we increase fibre, when we reduce these refined carbohydrates, a lot of people are just very unaware as well of where these sugars are coming into their food. And I hate to demonise just one particular element like sugar, but sugar has a lot to be responsible for, as well as poor quality fats, as well as the timing of eating and and, uh, everything else around uh, nutrition as well. I think about sugar is
0: um, people
1: have known forever, haven't they?
0: I mean, it's been a long, it's been a long time, but we've there's this been there's this resistance to doing anything about it because it's like you're taking away everyone's fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You can't take can't
1: take our sugar. But <laughs> <coughs> as
0: you say, if you have to look for a demon, yeah. I mean,
1: sugar's the candidate, isn't it? I would say. Um, again we like to uh put things in little boxes you know before it was fat in the 60s 70s was fat now it's sugar what's the next thing and (coughs) i think when we take that perspective we 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 don't educate people we we give them sort of uh, an excuse as to why something's happening it's just like you know if you just do this everything will be better and in reality it's not that simple our bodies are very complex machines and just eliminating the sugar yes it can have some benefits but we have to look at the patient holistically and it's about meeting them where they're at as well um, and I also think that we're in a very privileged position where you know you've obviously got into health and wellness I'm a medical physician I've done a lot of reading around the subject whereas the majority of people have no clue where hidden sugars are. I mean, I speak to people about uh, pop and soda and all the different sort of fizzy drinks, and they're completely unaware that just one can of soda has their entire quota of added sugar for one 24-hour period. They don't realize, and they're having two or three a day. So, uh, you know, a-, a win for that patient might be reducing their cans from three to two a day in the anticipation of reducing the sugar content further. So I, I think we live in this bubble where we're just like, oh, everyone knows this. Whereas actually, no one—not uh, no one—a lot of people do not know this, and that's why we see the figures that are so tremendous up and down the country.
0: I guess there, is, I guess there is. There's knowing, there's not knowing, and then but there's got to be a healthy amount of denial, in the in the, in the <laughs> yeah. middle, hasn't there? Like uh, yeah, I kind of know, but yeah, a whistle and walk the other way.
1: I have that, particularly with my family. Actually, like because uh, you know. They do know, and I, I see where you're coming from with that healthy denial, which is like, oh yeah, has this got sugar in? Is this white bread got sugar in? Or is this, you know, and, and so I understand that perspective. Um, and, that, and that's why like I like to take the doctor's kitchen approach, I, talk, I, I, I call it, which is where you can have everything, but it's where we focus our effort, so it's like, eating more plant-focused. You can have meat if you want. It's actually a very healthy addition to the diet, but we focus on the plants. You can have pasta if you want. That's fine. Again, it can be a healthy addition to the diet, but we focus on the vegetables around it. And so you can have everything in, in, in well, not your cake, but, you know, you can, you can have everything in moderation, but it's where we focus our efforts. Because I'm going to ask you about meat because you have some
0: meat yeah. in your recipes, but it's obviously heavily plant based you have do you have some red meat at all most yeah the fish, I do actually. a
1: little bit yeah yeah I, I so I take the view I eat everything i've grown up to eat everything, and i don 't think you know people should be scared of uh, of eating anything and I, I think uh, a, a lot of the plant based community have a habit unfortunately where you know they use particular studies that show that fish is contaminated with mercury or uh, red meat uh, has got a a correlation with with cancer rates and stuff. And I think it comes back to dose and taking a healthy, holistic view of everything. Um, To say that you you can't have any meat in your diet or you're gonna get cancer or you're gonna get diabetes, you're gonna get all these other things, I think is, it's it's really scaremongering and um, it causes a lot of confusion rather than educating the public. You know, you could say anything positive about anything and anything negative about anything. You know, broccoli, great, you know, it contains acid. If you have too much broccoli, too much oxalate and you might get rid- uh, kidney stones. You know, I could take any ingredient and I could say a bad thing about it, I could say a good thing about it. So rather than being picky about things, it's all about dose, about how much you eat. So to go back to your question you know, about eating meat, can you eat uh, uh, meat and still have a healthy lifestyle? Absolutely, but it's about how much you put in. And if we, you choose to put it in or you choose to take it out, whatever, you know, it's up to you, it's up to the individual. No one should be forced either way. So you don't see a problem with eating no meat from a nutritional point of view? I think uh, if you choose not to eat meat, you have to be careful about supplementation. And it's something that I wrote specifically about in my book, actually, because I have a plant-focused lifestyle, I would say 85 to 90% of my food comes from plants, and a variety of different plants. So the things that I talk about with uh, completely plant-based eaters are um, making sure you're getting variety, making sure you're definitely having legumes, beans, because they're a really good source of calcium, uh, as well as fibers, uh, magnesium, etc. You have to supplement with B12, um, omega-3, the long chain forms, as well as potentially uh, iron and iodine as well. Um, There may be some additions as well going forward, like vitamin K2 and vitamin D3, uh, but those are generally lacking in everyone's diets, not just the plant-based eaters. So uh, yeah, there are a few nutritional deficiencies that you can come across with with, um, purely plant-based eating. And that's another reason why I don't believe in a completely plant, uh, um, 100% plant world. That a lot of people will aspire to, because if you took meat out of a lot of uh, the UK's population diet, we'd become crushingly deficient in a lot of food because people just don't know how to use purely plants and have a healthy lifestyle. You can have a very healthy lifestyle just in plants, you can have a very unhealthy, and it's about teaching everyone. And we're not
0: there yet. On this link between um, food and happiness, there's the, obvious, the there's the there's obvious link. You eat something nice, it makes you happy, mm. but there's a there's increasing scientific evidence of a deeper link isn't there yeah
1: yeah uh i'm fascinated by the topic of eating for mood um but i think again we run the risk of being very binary about it it's kind of like um you know you eat this and then it boosts your serotonin levels and you instantly become happy it's kind of like food using food like a pill and if you're using food like a pill you might as well take a pharmaceutical Really, food and medicine and food as medicine is about eating for your internal ecosystem that puts it in balance by uh, essentially harnessing your body's innate ability to balance everything and look after itself and by feeding it the right fuel. So eating for mood isn't just about eating tryptophan-containing foods, it's not just about eating probiotics, it's not just about eating, you know, a particular type of green leafy vegetable that's shown to improve, you know, serotonin levels uh, or neurotransmitters it's about eating holistically to boost your body's own innate ability to look after itself from a mental health point of view whether that be reducing inflammation whether that be improving the variety of bugs that live largely in your gut that produce the neurotransmitters whether that be eating lots of different micronutrients that are relevant for uh, enzymatic processes that improve your uh, your um, neuronal health you know all these different things food does; it acts on things simultaneously, rather than you eat this and it boosts that sort of thing.
0: What about in food, food and inflammation? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mentioned before we came on about a new book by Professor Edward Bullmore called yeah. *The Inflamed Mind*, which yeah. I've read half of. Mm. Um, you've read all of, but you've probably read it with a much, um <laughs> much more informed yeah. mind than me. <laughs> I mean, from 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 what I could see I'll give my my ignorant view of the book you can, you Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, haven't read it. half the book <laughs> first and <laughs> yeah. you can tell me afterwards yeah is that it's a bit like the old science of you know healthy mind healthy body but yeah. he's as a psychiatrist he he's broken down the kind of the the real um, physiological effects of inflammation right within the body that crosses the blood brain barrier and can make you depressed yes yeah
1: yeah I really like the book. I post it on my Instagram and it's it's a fascinating journey through his sort of conventional training uh, that separated body and mind that a lot of conventional medicine does uh, and a realization through his research work, because I think he's primarily a researcher now, um, where he realized that there are uh, links between inflammation and uh, mental health. And we've seen these links for a long time, actually, I think he's, he's put some like, really interesting anecdotes of where you know, he'll come across diabetes patients or rheumatoid arthritis patients, uh, you know, things that have uh, their roots in inflammation and a correlation with depression uh, and mental health issues. And he's always asking the question, you know, is there something here? But everyone is like, nah, they're, they're just, you know, it's just correlated because if you had diabetes, for example, you'd be depressed as well.
0: And that's it's that you would be, wouldn't you? He exactly. uses, doesn't he? Yes. it would. You would be, wouldn't that, you? Yeah, that, as though that explains it, and there's no need to exactly. look any further. Exactly, as if that is a scientific
1: explanation as well. But for for what's that's going what's on, that's what's bizarre about it, which is terribly unscientific. And, and that's why I really enjoy his book from the process of you know deconstructing what's actually going on and applying it to his his own field of psychiatry. Um, the whole realization about inflammation affecting mental health kind of comes to, uh, to, to fruition where we realize that the brain is not isolated from the body's inflammation mechanisms. And actually, inflammatory proteins can cross, the, uh, and immune cells can cross into the brain. It's not a sterile part of the body. We used to think oh, uh, there's a term called immunoprivileged, um, and we used to think our brain was completely separate from the immune cells of our, our general body, whereas they're not. And so, you know, if you do have an inflamed body, you can have an inflamed mind as well, and that does have an impact on depression and uh, mental health issues as well.
0: Does it, have, does it have its roots in the mind, it may, it may be, maybe in religious things? The mind being somehow separate from the body, because it seems it seems weird to assume that the the brain as an organ within the body wouldn't be affected
1: in the same way as everything else exactly it's kind of like we're going back to ancient medicine we're actually realizing you know they had a lot of truths in what they were saying you know, particularly with the gut particularly with the, uh, the brain mind body connection um you know that the utility of uh deep breathing exercises meditation inner stillness fasting you know all these different concepts that have their roots in medicine that's been practiced for thousands of years we're actually realizing oh there's actually some science behind it which i find absolutely fascinating because i think the easy accessible uh, routes of improving lifestyle is the future of medicine Um, and it doesn't it's not just about food it's about everything else as well
0: Because it almost almost seems like in the 20th century, they got so good, made so many um, strides in fixing things. Yes. They thought, all right, we can fix everything now. Yes. We don't need to worry about what you do. You know, doctor knows best, we'll fix everything. Yeah.
1: And that culture of there's a pill for every ill, is still prevalent today. I still get people coming in, you know, uh, I feel nausea uh, and I've been like this for 24 hours. Do you have a pill for this? Whereas actually, if you rewind about four days ago, and you analyze what they've been up to, there's a clear link between why they're feeling nauseous today and what they've been doing for the last four days. But rather than waiting or giving your body time to recuperate, um, they want a pill. Because science has convinced them, whether it be the media, whether it be uh, their own doctor, whether it be, you know, just the general culture of, you go to the doctor, when you feel ill, they'll give you a pill and you'll feel better. And that, unfortunately, is not the case. And actually, you know, we need to create a new culture that appreciates our lifestyle and our food as much more powerful than the medicines that we're able to prescribe. And the science is there to back it up. I guess it's
0: just taking responsibility for your own health as much as you can, to the point at which, you know, obviously at a certain point, Medical intervention is needed, but mostly it's down to you, isn't it? No one's helping you cross the road, are they? You've got to kind of do everything yourself. And
1: exactly, yeah. And I think, you know, we've kind of like outsourced uh, medicine to, uh, or, or healthcare and wellbeing to uh, the medical professionals and, and healthcare institutions. Whereas actually, we need to encourage people to become the masters and the experts of their own health. And that's something that isn't intuitive to uh, particularly our culture in the UK. And America whereas you know you go to uh, place like Southeast Asia or in India or in Japan and they actually have that in their culture uh, and that might explain a lot of the differences between why they have generally healthier populations and we we do not and we're actually going the other way I and mean, there's a lot of crossover now given that people are adopting more Western lifestyles because it's seen as more aspirational particularly in India um, But certainly going back to basics where instead of going to the doctor, you'd actually take care of yourself and you'd do things before you present. And that's where we need to go, I think.
0: Hmm. Where do you stand on fasting?
1: So fasting is a fascinating concept. There's loads of really interesting research coming out at the moment. Um, I think first of all, we are having an issue with orthorexia, which is the, an unhealthy obsession with um, healthy eating, as well as eating disorders are on the rise as well. So I think fasting is something that I'm very careful about because I know that my social media following is, uh, is potentially uh, uh, speaking to uh, both men and women that might have an issue with, with eating in general. So it's something that I haven't really talked about too much, however, there is some really interesting research looking at uh, defined eating periods where you just eat in a general 10 to 12 hour window, as well as uh, the utility of low calorie diets and low energy diets for like four or five days, and then overt fasting, which is where you're gonna water fast for anywhere between 24 and 72 hours. Um, From the research that I've seen, I think everyone could generally benefit from defining your eating windows to about 10 to 12 hours. What that does is it regulates your uh, your, your body's sort of routine. It um, improves uh, hormonal levels and it, and it improves your circadian rhythm, which is the rough 24-hour uh, cycle that all of your cells are entwined to, uh, as well as uh, stopping mindless snacking, like in the, in the evenings. Uh, it's no longer deemed acceptable culturally to be hungry at any point and i think we've lost that feeling of like what it's like to be hungry and and you know just dealing with it um And I I think a lot of people could benefit from just defining their their eating windows. And loads of research to say that, you know, improves insulin levels, improves hormone levels, and all the rest of it. So I think that's a generally good thing. The utility of fasting, I think, has a therapeutic role. And there's some people, uh, like Walter Longo, who's just come out with a book you should definitely read called The Longevity Diet. Um, And he's looking at the um, impact of, of fasting or fasting mimicking diets, he calls it. Uh, and autoimmune conditions, uh, cancer, diabetes. Um, there is a theory that what fasting does, is it puts your body into a shield and protective mode. It upregulates something called autophagy, which is clearing away of dead or sort of senescent cells that are just hanging around and causing inflammation. And upregulates the production of stem cells. So those are the sort of the new cells that can develop into new healthy cells uh, whether that be in the brain or the heart or the muscle those sorts of things so it's very preliminary but I'm I'm very interested in the subject and I think there is utility from a therapeutic point of view it's something that you have to work with a practitioner uh, with though because we grew up being told that being hungry was bad for you you so
0: you've got to eat something you've got to eat something but it seems as a as an animal it seems quite natural that you would have periods when you did eat and periods when you didn't eat Totally,
1: I I like to think about our our lifestyles from an evolutionary point of view, where we would have hunted and gathered, or we would have dealt with famine, and you know, it's quite unnatural actually to have access to food 24 hours a day. Um, This is something that's only been a phenomenon for the last hundred or so years, whereas before, you know, you would have have, uh, eaten during daylight hours, you would have slept otherwise, you would have gone through periods where you wouldn't have had any food and your body is actually adapted to that it's actually an evolutionary adaption um, that fasting has been for us and, and you look uh, this is why I'm fascinated by the human body you look at the intricacies the mechanisms the design it's so beautiful in every single way it's kind of like we just need to put ourselves in a similar environment and appreciate the modern uh, advantages that we have with technology and, and food and, and all the rest of it. Um, but keep that mindset of what our bodies are designed to do. We're designed to move. We're designed to sleep when it's dark. We're designed to eat uh, during daylight hours. We're designed to eat certain foods as well.
0: Did you, are there things that frustrate you that you see in the media, like health myths? I mean, one that persists, for example, is I heard someone say it the other day that, about nuts being fattening. Yeah, example, yeah. Fat. I mean, because I, I, what they've done is they've looked at the packet yeah. and seen that it's got a lot of fat in it and yeah. therefore fatting. So that's a sort of myth that hopefully most people have moved past but are there other ones that you see repeated that annoy you that think, Yeah, if
1: only... I think the whole calorie counting thing is quite um, basic and I think it leads to things like that to people thinking, you know, if I have... Uh, a couple of nuts, it's going to put me over my energy balance for the day and that's going to cause weight gain. I I really think that we have to appreciate that everyone's metabolism is completely different and it's dependent on so many different things like your gut microbes, like what have you done that day, like what your sleep is like, uh, what your current state of of being is, whether you have conditions, all these different things. Um, and And I think the whole focus, this myopic focus on... Calories is is really really irritating, and I would rather people appreciate you know the beauty of food, the colours, the the sort of like variety and all those different things, rather than well I can't eat that because that's five hundred calories, so I'm going to go for the two calorie two hundred calorie option, even though the two hundred calorie option is made up of fried chips, white rice, and maybe a bit of salmon. You know it's it's it doesn't make sense. Uh, like just common sense needs to prevail I think Mm.
0: what about say someone say like me I'm in my mid 40s who maybe they're busy and they're trying their best if you had to I know you were saying it's not one easy fix but if you have to look at like maybe the simplest things that you know because if you're taking one step at a time yeah. to improve your eating what are the real things are so sugar yeah up, yeah down on
1: so i i like to simplify things into principles of healthy eating rather than like a diet right and this is something I, t- I spoke about in the first series of my podcast it's eating whole so that's less refined and more whole food so you know sweet potato with the skins on or root vegetables again with the skins on uh, eating less of the refined stuff which is the white pastas white breads and of course yes white sugar and fizzy drinks so any more whole that's one principle eating more plant focused so you focus your food around different colorful varieties of plants so uh you know rather than having meat as the main course you want actually greens the yellows the purples the reds all those different things as your as your main sort of fat uh, source quality fats So that's nuts, seeds, yes, avocado, yes, that's your virgin olive oil. They're very, very healthy for us. And we should be eating those uh, much more than we're currently uh, eating at the moment. They're micronutrient-dense and incredible flavor enhancers as well. Uh, And then also eating in time, I think. That's a very important principle that a lot of people don't really uh, know about. And that's eating in a general 10 to 12-hour window. And then, of course, colors. You've got to get colors in. Colours. Yeah, colours. Different colours on your plate. Haribo. Car, <laughs> <laughs> I always get that. Skittles, <laughs> eat yeah, the rainbow, sorry. that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, like just getting different colours. I think, uh, like I was saying, I have spoken to a lot of people and they just have the same things every week. They'll get, you know, uh, some potatoes, some, um, some pasta, maybe some onions, some garlic, and that's about it. Whereas actually, you know, you, you want to mix it up every week. We're, we're actually designed, I believe, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, to eat seasonally. And so when you see things in seasoning, just try it, just, just grab it off the shelf and be like, all right, I'm gonna try this. I'm going to, you know, we have access to so many different recipes now online, we can figure out how to, how to incorporate it into our diet. This 10 to 12 hour window, yeah. does it matter when it is? So I tend to uh, suggest to people that y- you don't want to eat too late and too close oh, to love, when you sleep. Oh, I love to eat. I love it yeah. I love bread. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the best time. I see that. Yeah, I put a continuous glucose monitor. It's a little device you put on the back of someone's arm, uh, on a diabetic patient, and uh, I could see exactly when uh, he was eating. And uh, it was about eleven p.m. I saw this huge spike, and it persisted, persisted like for four or five hours, whilst they were sleeping. And I remember asking me like, what did you eat here? And it was like, oh, I had a Chinese, it was quite late, it was about 11 p.m. And you know, just showing someone, this is what it's doing to your blood sugar, this is how high your blood sugar is, and this is what you're sleeping. Whilst you're sleeping, your body is fighting hard to reduce that blood sugar level. And in doing so, it's disrupting your sleep mechanisms, it's reducing your quality time sleeping. Um, and it's going to have a knock-on effect the next day because if you, if you have poor quality sleep, you're much more likely to crave the salty, sugary items the next day. And obviously, you're not going to be having the um, doses of melatonin, those have anti-inflammatory effects, those have antioxidant effects. There's so many other mechanisms that are in play. So I'm guilty of the same thing. Like I love having ice cream, uh, and I love having like a piece of dark chocolate. But I try and have that earlier in the evening rather than before I go to bed. So you should try and leave what a couple of hours before bed. I say generally two to three hours. Yeah, if you do two to three hours, that's great. Um, And it it depends on people's uh, convenience as well. Sometimes I fast uh, for like sixteen hours. So. Uh, when I was doing my master's in nutrition, I was going to a module and it's all the way in Surrey. And that for me is a two hour commute, so I had to leave my house at quarter past six. There's no way I'm gonna eat that early in the morning. I don't feel hungry at that time and I I didn't want to rush it either. So instead of, of rushing a breakfast, I'll just have a gentle fast in the morning and I won't break my fast until 11 or 12 p.m. that day. But I go into it with complete conscious energy. I know, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna drink water, I'm just gonna have some black tea, nothing despite my glucose levels, and I'm just gonna have lunch, and I'm gonna enjoy my lunch, and it's gonna be full of delicious ingredients, and I'm just gonna have breakfast that day. But my total energy needs for that day will be met by those two or three meals that I have. Within that, or in that term, it will be like eight hour window. How do you balance
0: now these two sides of your career? So you're still working as a doctor full-time?
1: No, 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 I don't work full-time. So I've taken the decision to go down to two clinical sessions a week and I split my time in um, A&E, general practice, lifestyle consults. Um, I do some work with uh, 111 as well, uh, like as an an advisor. Um, And then I have quite a few ads, if I'm honest. Yeah, so I've got the non-profit... The Doctor's Kitchen, the podcast, uh, the book stuff, um, yeah, and then entrepreneurship programs as well. So it's I'm kind of juggling a lot of things and that's why I still want to keep my foot in the clinical game, because I want to keep my finger on the clinical side of things. Um, but uh, I think it's important for me to chase the dream of improving thousands, if not millions, of people's lives around the globe uh, by using a food and lifestyle medicine approach.
0: Do you feel like the constant pressure to look and be healthy the whole time?
1: You know, because I've been doing it for so long, and because I know what the downside of um, being unhealthy can be, like having a condition, uh, it becomes very natural to me. And my aim, my aspiration is to show people how how it can become a very natural way of living without effort. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with the diet side of things. You know, you go on a diet, it's gonna take loads of effort, and you're not gonna enjoy it. Whereas actually, I really, really enjoy the food I eat and the lifestyle I lead. I exercise in the morning, I feel absolutely fantastic, I eat delicious food, I eat what I want when I choose to eat it, and I, that improves my function. It's kind of like a, not a vicious circle, the antithesis of a vicious circle, it's a motivating circle, it just keeps me going. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way at this point. And I wish more people could feel how I feel and how I'd like them to feel. Amazing. And there can
0: still be some of the stuff people would think of as naughty. My wife wanted to know, um, (laughs) what was about that pink donut on your Instagram?
1: I love that pink donut. Yeah, I had that when I was uh, was was in Buffalo. I was best man at my friend's wedding. And um, I was at the hotel lobby and they said, you need to try the cronut. Um, it's like a cross between a croissant and a donut. And they had it at this coffee place and I wanted to go get some delicious coffee. So I went there and I saw the this, this pink donut, I think that put some like f- cherry frosting on it. And I had my black coffee and I absolutely enjoyed every single mouthful of that. And it was delicious. And the reason why I put it on in my Instagram is because I want people to understand that it's not a restrictive lifestyle. You should be enjoying these, but these are luxury items. It's when you get into that habit of having a croissant on your way to work every single day, yeah, and you're just like chugging it down. You know, it's it, you lose the appreciation for the food as well. You no longer appreciate that delicious croissant anymore. It just becomes oh, something sweet, and you blunt your taste buds. You 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 blunt that sugar spike. You probably crave more sugary things. You know, I I rem- I still remember that, doing that yeah. today. <laughs> no, it's great. Well,
0: it's very inspiring that you can. You can eat healthily but still be very joyful and still enjoy doing it. Absolutely. Thanks very much for talking to me, Dr. Rupi of thedoctorskitchen.com. Thank you very much. No worries, any time. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Dr. Rupi Ordula for talking to me. Rupi can be found at thedoctorskitchen.com. And he is doctors underscore kitchen on Instagram. Healthy Beast is Healthy Beast Podcast on Instagram. Thank you very much. Bye.